Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. As always, I'm Alex Roy and here with a really awesome guest. But first, my co-hosts, um, the always attacking Edward Niedermeyer, Senior Editor of Mobility for The Drive. Hello, Edward. Hi, Alex. I'm, I'm not always attacking. Not always. Yeah, you are. <laughs> only, only when I'm trying to have fun. How about often attacking? Often attacking. the authoritative, balanced, um, knowledgeable, and um, highly credible, Kirsten Korsak, uh Senior Editor, TechCrunch. Hello, Kirsten. I like the uh, highly credible part. Well, in the, in the absence of those words... Anything goes. Uh, and today we have one of my favorite people, uh, the CEO of a company I'm, I'm a huge fan of. If I could give an endorsement to any product, this be it. And we're going to talk about my relationship with them in a moment. Um, the CEO of, of Adam Cogtech, uh, Carl Pickering. Hello, Carl. Good morning, Alex. I'm really glad you've finally come on the show because so many companies want to be on a ton of casts, uh, you know, Kirsten and Ed and I are always debating, you know, when, if the technology is real, like what does it do? Is it unique? Uh, and I'm a huge fan of what you guys are doing. Well, thank you for, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm, I'm looking forward to an interesting discussion with yourself and Ed and Kirsten. Well, this, this is really great because, you know, I'm, I've been yelling for years about the lack of a proper driver monitoring system in Tesla's equipped with autopilot, but pretty much in almost any car. And it's become really obvious that Tesla's autopilot needs one, but I think almost any car that has any form of semi-automation in it should have some type of, of DMS. And last year, out of the blue, uh, I was introduced to a guy named you know Aran Sandhouse through Kirsten, actually. Kirsten, where were we when this happened? We were in Israel. That's right. And he and and he said to me, it's not we've got something. It's not a driver monitoring system. It's something else that layers on top of it. Carl, can we can we start with what were you doing before you became the CEO of Adam Cocktail? So before I joined Adam, I worked for Jaguar Land Rover for almost 20 years. Um, and that Jaguar Land Rover held an, a number of positions I was the head of research and technology strategy, so I saw some absolutely fantastic new technologies, some of which made it to uh, production and uh, some some which didn't. Um, in that role, I extended to head of automated driving uh, technology strategy. Um, and in that uh, particular role, one of my passions and a subject I studied for many years at university after my degree was um, human-machine interface. So I was asked to lead the automated driving human-machine interface team, and we had a presence, a team in China, US, and, and the UK. And it was felt, and, and I still feel the same, that one of the biggest challenges for the successful introduction of automation does actually lie with the human machine interface. So I have a strong interest and passion uh, for the subject. And, and that's what I spent uh, many years within JLR doing. So what, how would you describe or what does Adam Cogtech make? I can explain it as I see it. I want to hear it from you. Can we also learn how you decided to leave a company that, I mean, you had built a career there. So yeah. what prompted you to even make this jump 
Okay, that's that's interesting because um, I was looking for, as I say, twenty years with one company in a, a large corporate is a, is an awful long time. So on the personal level, I was looking for a new challenge, um, but I didn't want that new challenge just to be a different job. I wanted it to be something that could be potentially really meaningful, uh, and I mean that in the most genuine sense. Something where sort of my time and effort could make a real difference. And driver safety has always been something that uh, has interested me. Um, and I've always been intrigued by the fact that whilst there's been the introduction of many great uh, ADAS features on the market, all predominantly doing the same thing, which is in effect correcting human error. Um, Human error being the single biggest cause of all accidents. Um, I just found it quite interesting that there was no technology out there that was dedicated to preventing human error. And, and preventing and correcting are two very different things. Um, and I was introduced to uh, Adam. And effectively, what I saw was a world-class team with some great technology that actually for the first time addressed how do you prevent human error um, and obviously the market potential uh, speaks for itself and, and credit credit should go to somebody very special within the team called Irez Alof. He's the chairman and founder and he's the one that had the vision uh, for what we now would term the cognition layer. So it was a unique opportunity and one that I felt was compelling enough to leave a large corporate. And that's um, how I ended up there. Can you explain the difference between what, how a traditional driver monitoring system works and sure. what you're doing? Yeah. So first of all, I'm a big, big fan of driver monitoring systems and, and not just for vehicles with uh, any degree of semi-automation, whether it's SAE level two, three, or even four, I'm actually a big fan of driver monitoring systems for all vehicles with a steering wheel. Um, I think it goes way beyond uh, driver monitoring. Um, and what driver monitoring systems effectively do is they look at the physical parameters of the driver. So in its simplest sense, they would check that the driver's hands are on the steering wheel. They would check what we call the postural position of the driver. In other words, is the driver sat upright um, and paying attention to the forward road scene? Driver monitoring systems also look at um, head uh, tracking and eye gaze. So even if the driver is hands on steering wheel and sat upright, um, they may not be looking at the road scene ahead. Um, driver monitoring systems will also do that for you. And uh, there are some driver monitoring systems that will even go beyond that and offer a number of additional features like driver identification, um, like uh, basic driver drowsiness monitoring. Um, so DMS systems offer great benefits and there's some good, very good suppliers out there developing some very effective systems so i'm i'm a big fan um but but and and this is the but dms systems monitor the physical layer 
What they don't address is the cognition layer. And the cognition layer is the layer that holds the most interest uh, for me personally, because when we talk about human error being the leading cause of the vast majority of accidents, that human error effectively comes down to one of two reasons. Um, the first is basically the driver cognitive state. In other words, the driver is cognitively impaired. And that impairment could be due to alcohol. It could be due to sleep deprivation. It could, could be due to uh, substance abuse. And it could be due to things like extreme stress or anxiety. And, and that impairment is what leads um, very often to human error. And the second um, aspect is misallocation of cognitive resources. So even if you have a driver that's got a perfectly healthy and normal cognitive state, um, we tend to do things, and we're all guilty, of doing things in vehicles um, that perhaps we shouldn't. Um, so misallocation of cognitive resources, or put simply, driver inattention or driver distraction. Um, and in addition to that driver um, inattention, what driver inattention leads to is the missing of potential hazards in the road scene ahead. And the cognition layer addresses that shortfall by providing what I would term as active attention management. So something that can, first of all, detect that the driver has missed the hazard and then actually supports the driver to try and aid him to see the hazard that he's missed. And these are active attention management. And both the driver cognitive state monitoring and the active attention management is the core foundation of the cognition layer, which, as you pointed out, sits on top of any existing uh, DMS. And you put the two together and you have the physical layer with the cognition layer and you have a very powerful system that has got the potential to save many, many lives. And, you know, one of the things which is, I mean, the hinge of all criticism of Tesla Autopilot is that people are not paying attention mm -hmm. and then the system deactivates and forces them to take control when they've already not been paying attention and they have you generally no idea what they're doing. Yeah. And not so, just not not just not taking not just not paying attention, sometimes actively trying to beat the system so they don't have to pay attention, right? Yeah. Well, for, I, I guess first of all I should I should say um <clears throat> I have an awful lot of respect for what Elon Musk and Tesla has done in terms of introducing um, mass electrification. And Tesla were also one of the first to have the vision of the car as a data platform to introduce software over the air for... Well, you're being a nice guy, Carl. Come on. <laughs> but... No, no, there is a but. There is a but. So so, so the, the car as a data platform, I also... Um, I think that vision was... Um, uh, worthy of no, and, and the widespread introduction of um, ADAS and semi-automation. However, I do disagree, and I disagree very strongly with their approach in terms of the lack of DMS 
um, into the Tesla system, it would be a far safer and superior uh, system if if they did introduce a, a DMS. I, I mean, the facts speak for themselves. I, I think I heard on um, either the um, interview with uh, Elon between Lex Freeman and Elon oh, or in the report, there was something like 18,000 disengagements. Um, and every time you have a disengagement where the driver is taking control, whether that's instigated by the driver or in many cases driven by the system to not know, to not know the state of the driver when you have a machine handing back control to a human is a serious deficiency, in my opinion. If you were going to build a system for Tesla, let's say, since we're talking about them, mm-hmm. uh, and obviously I'm sure you would say you would recommend the system that you have, but let's talk about without you know putting a brand name on anything, what would be the perfect DMS system based on the research that you have looked into or been a part of and also the techno- technological um, insights that you have, what would be the best system for Tesla. And does that system, would it be different for a different manufacturer with different capabilities? Or in your view, is it all have to be essentially the same type of system and you wouldn't have nuanced changes depending on the level of automation within the vehicle? So in terms of the best DMS, um, it's difficult to say. I mean, there, there are some good companies out there, that I, and I think they've been mentioned um, uh, previously. There, there's companies like SmartEye, CE Machines, Effective, uh, and, and others. Um, and effectively, they're all doing pretty much the same thing. There's a, a, a driver-facing camera, which is passive, um, that is observing the behavior of the driver. And as I mentioned, it's principally looking at the the physical parameters. The, the ones I would say I would favor, and, and to be fair, they are all going this way, are those that try to extract the most value in terms of um, attention measurement and attention monitoring. So just being able to track head and eye gaze um, is a starting point, but being able to actually convert that into useful features that can influence the behavior of the driver is where we will start to see the real benefit of these DMS systems uh, kicking in. So an example, you know, would be that, you know, if we are detecting that the driver is looking away from the road scene for a certain amount of time, and that could be three seconds, four seconds, two seconds, um, that the system actually does something to improve driver's attention, either through audible and visual warnings. Similarly, if we know that the driver has the onset of, of drowsiness, um, you know, how about doing something proactive to try and make the driver more alert? Um, so I think those DMS systems that get a little braver <laughs> to actually be more proactive in influencing drivers' behavior will be the ones that ultimately succeed the most. So the the key to this, it seems, is and and you know, tell me, I'm I'm guessing here, but is it uh, that 
you you've done sort of research into human behavior, and so you're able to use sort of different cues to be more sort of predictive than reactive. Is that what's going on here, or or, or how are you able to make this shift from just responding to the physical layer to what you call this cognition layer? So, in in terms of the cognition layer, um, the the reason we we've been able to, I guess, make that step is that to claim that you can monitor the cognitive state of a driver is quite a dramatic claim for, for any scientist or engineering person to say that you can determine the cognitive state of a driver. You know, you can understand what's inside um, the brain and what's going on is is quite a, a sweeping uh, claim. We are claiming that. We, we are actually claiming that. And we're claiming it because the data that we have in the laboratory through the experiments um, confirm that. Um, and the reason we've been able to do it is it works on the, the premise that all humans work on the basis of pattern recognition. Um, so when we read some text, we immediately get drawn to a spelling mistake and, and that provokes some activity in the brain. Similarly, if we're listening to music and we hear a, a, a wrong note, immediately that gets our attention. So, so by, by having patterns that are broken, they initiate activity in the brain. What we um, have developed is a technology that detects that uh, brain activity through a number of very sophisticated ocular parameters. So using the driver-facing camera, we measure a set of ocular parameters that can determine that difference when a human sees a break in a pattern. And, and the, the technology itself um, has got fairly strong foundations in the medical sector, and we are bringing this to the automotive sector. So that's how we're able um, to understand the cognitive state of the driver. And, and clearly, when we talk about ocular parameters, you know, we've all seen people that are drunk or drowsy or under the influence of substances. And, and there are, and it's very apparent, change in those ocular parameters. And, and that's what we do. And, and no, just to, to clarify, I'm sorry, just to, if we can clarify what ocular parameter, I mean, I, I assume this means changes in the, in sort of your pupil dilation or, or things like that, but can you do a little detail on, on what you mean by ocular parameters? It's like in Blade Runner in the opening scene. Yeah. It's the white comp <laughs> testing, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so as I mentioned, there's quite a sophisticated set um, of input ocular parameters that go into an artificial intelligence algorithm. And those uh, parameters specifically are, as you pointed out, they are pupil, pupil dilation, isocade movements, both in the absolute sense of distance and speed, uh, eyelid position, um, and a number of other uh, parameters that feed into an algorithm and and the the critical point here is we measure because because ocular parameters change all the time anyway they change due to uh, lighting conditions and so on measuring ocular parameters in a moving vehicle 
is no small task. Um, and that's why we can use the driver facing camera. So first of all, we ensure that the driver is facing ahead. We create a stimulus and the stimulus allows us to negate the external environment because when we're all driving, we're distracted by various things either on the road or um, on the curbside. So what, what the stimulus does is it serves as our trigger point to start measuring the ocular parameters. This only takes two or three seconds and we don't do it all the time. You know, we would do it on the, the start of a journey and we would do it periodically throughout that journey. And the only other time we would do it is if we saw an activity within the vehicle that suggested something might be wrong with the driver. So, for example, if we detected that the driver has just uh, carried out a swerving maneuver and we would we would get that information from the CAN bus, then again, we would just check that the driver is OK by operating the stimulus and measuring the ocular parameters. Does a driver, rec um, would a driver be able to notice when that stimulus is being enacted? So the, st the stimulus is subliminal, so it's very quick. We're, we're talking about something that's taking place within a few milliseconds. Um, so it's, it's subliminal. Um, and I'm pretty sure if, um, if you were uh, sat in, uh, one of our driving simulators, you would you would say that you didn't know it was there. Now, one quick question, just for a sense of comparison, because you mentioned, you know, sort of showing the difference or describing the difference between your company and others. And mm -hmm. we've had Affectiva on before, mm -hmm. and they their premise is measuring or detecting all of the human cues that they might get. So emotive, but also they say complex cognitive states, behaviors and other things that might show that someone is agitated or drowsy in other states. So how is this different than what Affectiva is, aside from the fact that you use this ocular measurement, but is is the same, are you going after the same thing or is there some other difference here? Yeah, so there is a very subtle difference um, between ourselves and Effectiva and, and other companies. For example, there are some companies that look at thermographic imaging um, and they will look at the increase in blood flow um, to the brain to try and determine a cognitive state. Um, there are some like Affectiva, as you've mentioned, that would look at facial expressions and emotions um, to try and infer a cognitive state. Um, all other systems, certainly that I'm aware of, um, like the two I've just mentioned, and there are others, are working on a basis of what we would term open loop. So you basically have a passive driver facing camera and you have a driver that's driving. There is no influence over what the driver is doing or looking at. So my emotions or facial expressions could change 
not because of my state, but because I may have seen something on the road that either interests me or excites me or maybe even, you know, makes upsets me. Um, that is momentary and there is no way to determine for a sustained period because th th those uh, emotions and so on, those states can change quite, quite rapidly. Um, the system that Adam has uh, developed actually um, is deliberately trying to negate the external environment. So wh whatever is happening outside of the vehicle, um, we are in effect masking out and, and we're doing that through this technique of the stimulus. So by, by only taking a measurement when we apply the stimulus, we're measuring a response, a very specific response to a very specific stimulus. And therefore, um, we're not affected by any external or outside parameters. Um, so there is a fundamental difference um, between the system that Adam has and, and others. We're using a closed loop system that is independent of the external environment. So um, I think, I mean, I understand, uh, you know, that, that this is a subliminal uh, stimulus. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you know, are you, are you quite certain that the stimulus itself doesn't create cognitive load? Um, and sort of uh, was there sort of a, a process to discover like the proper stimulus to use for this or, or, you know, could you maybe just give a little more uh, insight into into that, how you chose the stimulus and. Um, and yeah. OK, sure. If you I, I think I mentioned that um, the underpinnings of some of this science are also used within the medical sector. So, for example, um, when we have uh, patients that are in um, deep um unconsciousness or, or in a coma and the medical profession are trying to understand um, the level of brain activity that might be within the patient and the likelihood of that patient um, recovering from that coma. This has been something that the medical industry has been trying to um, address uh, for many years and the the one of the best um techniques that they've come up with is uh to place an EEG on the skull of patients and provide a stimulus and in this case very often it's an audible stimulus uh, and to measure through the EEG um what the response to that stimulus is and and that gives them a a a pretty good indication of the the level of consciousness that's uh, existing, so it's the same premise. And, and we did um, certainly um, investigate audible um, stimulus. Um, we're not using audible; we're actually using a um, a visual stimulus. So yes, other stimulus were looked at, but we've opted for a visual. Uh, stimulus. It's the one that we believe gives the best um, response. Um, and clearly, we we don't place an EEG on on drivers' uh, skulls. We detect 
um, the response to the stimulus through the ocular parameters, which has very strong correlation to EEG. So that's that's the technique that we are bringing into the um, automotive sector. Uh, that's really interesting. I have a question about the how to correct the behavior. So I imagine Alex driving his Tesla and his Model 3 and engaging in terrible behavior. It's quite the hypothetical here. Well, now we do the intervals in the car. It, it's I'm, I'm safer than I used to be. But. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's just we'll say past Alex, not present or future Alex, but past Alex driving driving poorly yeah. or driving aggressively or or whatever, and not and not and yeah. not paying attention and and pushing the limits of autopilot and all these things. Yeah, and now we have this system in there. The behavioral cues or corrections you mentioned were audible, maybe an audible correction. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because to me, the big question mark is, let's say you have superior tech to to understand the cognitive load and level of distraction that someone has. Now you have the power to correct that. Yes. But if you don't correct that in the right way, I could just see people either finding a way to get around that. Yeah. So dis, somehow disable the system or yeah. it becomes a point where they become des- desensitized to whatever that corrective measure is. I, I, I think you're spot on. I think you're, you're, you're right. Um, one of the keys here is not to overburden the driver with corrections that they don't need. So the, the first question is, what, what's the cognitive state of the driver and are they in a state whereby some form of aid or attention management would help? If they're in their normal healthy state and they are seeing all of the road hazards ahead, um, then there is no point in unnecessarily uh, providing any additional um, information or support to them. Um, so the key is, first of all, what is their cognitive state? Secondly, are they actually missing hazards ahead? So, so how do you do that? So most, oh, sorry, an increasing number of vehicles are now being fitted with forward facing cameras. An increasing number of vehicles, as we've talked about, are being fitted with driver monitoring systems. So the forward facing cameras will certainly be able to identify hazards ahead, and they do. The perception layer of most automated driving systems do exactly that. They identify the hazards ahead. Um, the driver-facing camera will be able to do the matching. Has the driver actually seen that hazard? And and if the driver hasn't seen the hazard and he's in a state that is below his normal cognitive performance level, then this is the time where active attention management really has value in terms of helping drivers see things that they otherwise may not see, which could ultimately lead into a collision. And the way to do that most effectively is through a technique of visual cues. So if you can use, if you can use a system that can actually manipulate um, the driver's visual attention towards a particular hazard, then you've now got an active attention management system. 
And the, the, the system that we have used in the lab does just that. It actually identifies whether the hazard has been seen or not. And if not, using visual stimulus or visual cues, we actually drag the driver's eyes towards the hazards that he or she has missed. How do you do that? Can you explain how you drag the driver's eyes towards something? If you can imagine a full windscreen display and imagine geometrically, you know that the hazard is, say, northwest from the driver's eye line. You take where the driver is looking now and you provide a visual stimulus. And, and for want of simplicity, let's just call it a, a very quick flashing dot. And, and when I say quick, I'm talking milliseconds. And you then move that, you identify that the eye has seen that dot, which you can do using the driver-facing camera, and then you move that dot progressively, very fast, towards the hazard. And and subliminally, the driver's eyes will go to the hazard. And the laboratory experiments show that. So that, that's how we do it. So just full disclosure here, if I was not working at Argo AI, I would probably be working for Adam because when I saw this a few months ago and I've seen the prototype, I was convinced that this was this was the answer to the debate over what DMS systems should evolve to. Why? What was it that was so that stood out to you? Because having driven Cadillac Super Cruise and, you know, Tesla Autopilot. And so Tesla's DMS is a torque sensor on the wheel and that's it. And Super Cruise has a seeing machine system, which is very good. Um, but both of them, you know, are essentially variations of a mitigatory system that only is of any value after an error is made and assume completely that the driver, once, once handed back full control, is capable of making a decision. And so I had never previously seen a system like Adams, which was preemptive of error, and, and in addition to preemptive, prescriptive of solution. And so, you know, I'm, I'm guided by, you know, playing, you know, racing sims like Forza Motorsport, which have like the driving line, which changes colors based on how far you drift off of the optimal line. And I've seen such lines used to depict in animations for what navigation systems would look like, but I'd never seen such prescriptive, you know, um, preemptive cues applied to driving itself. And so it's, it, very, it was, became very obvious to me, and Carl, I'm sorry, you know, I'm very excited about what Adam's doing, and I, I'm often talking about it, uh, <laughs> because in my heart of hearts, I wish I was working at, at, at Adam. And just to be clear, <laughs> at full disclosure, um, I have no agreement with Adam. I am not being paid anyway, but it is, I am very much an endorser of this. So, so Alex, so now that you've given your... Let me wrap this up. Me wrap this up. Okay. Because this system... There's a debate coming in the future over whether or not DMS systems should be installed in vehicles that have maybe no automation. And it's very, and we've seen things like the coffee cup symbol in like old like Mercedes S classes going back for years, which alert you. It's like a timer that counts down to how long since you stopped. But beyond whether or not DMSs should go in level two or cars or below, it seems very obvious that we could solve safety for human-driven cars 
many years before we see any semi or full automation in any car that works well by closing this loop. And, uh, and, and so I guess what I'm taking this back to is, Carl, what, if anything, do you know about what Euro NCAP has said DMS systems need to do when um, their requirement kicks in to get a five-star rating in, in a couple of years? So, I think, well, first of all, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, I think ubiquitous self-driving cars, which will undoubtedly improve driver safety, um, they are decades away before we see ubiquity. Um, the, the DMS and the cognition layers can offer significant improvements uh, today. And as you said, it is now starting to be recognized by a whole series of, of bodies, NCAP being one of them. Um, and they are certainly advocating on their own roadmap the the introduction of DMS systems. Um, initially, um, I think it will start with passive systems. So um, they will start to use uh, detection systems from vehicle bus information that will give indications of the lack of uh, driving attention. So, for example, simply monitoring um, lateral lane deviation or sudden movements of uh, the steering uh, wheel angle. Um, but ultimately, um, I, I think they have clearly uh, their eyes set on camera-based, which are clearly the most effective, camera-based uh, driver monitoring systems, which will, I, I suspect, as always, be introduced, first of all, in the premium sector and then uh, be cascaded down. And I think the sooner we get these camera based driver monitoring systems in cars, um, the safer our roads will be. Um, and, and, and I really do believe that. So, but what is, what is your NCAP going to require? Like the heavy, what is the standard? Is it just a camera with some system or <laughs> is, a, is there a, a minimum level of behavior or uh, cognition that we have to observe? They haven't stated specifically yet the full, set of uh, requirements, but I think um, it's very likely that with the introduction of the camera-based uh, systems, there will be some form of warning that if driver inattention is monitored for a period, and, and that period is probably what they're deliberating on, if the driver is looking away from the road scene ahead, for more than a number of seconds, um, they will be, uh, OEMs will be asked to provide a warning to the driver. And, and it is a difficult, to be fair to NCAP and others, it's a very difficult, um, issue to address because of the simple fact when we talk about drivers looking away from the road scene ahead, you know, even good vigilant drivers, do need to look away from the road scene ahead. Um, and I think there are things that are going to be permissible. So, for example, when we talk about adjusting um, temperature in the vehicle or adjusting radio volume, that normally is done through a single glance. And, and that is permissible and it's, it's perfectly safe. But when we talk about some of the highly complex visual manual tasks, like entering satellite navigation destination addresses or finding a particular contact in a long list of numbers, 
Um, these tasks involve multiple glances away from the road scene ahead. Um, and, and it's what we all do. And the cars are fitted with these systems to allow us to do these things. So for them to stipulate um, a number or a time period for what is acceptable and not acceptable for a driver to look away from the road scene to operate these controls is quite a difficult, complex task. And I think that's why there's an awful lot of thought going into this issue. I have a perfect solution to that specific example, which is just to have voice, a natural voice recognition that works. <laughs> but, and so then you don't have to manually type anything in. Uh, what about, you know, I know that with most modern uh, current year model vehicles, for example, you don't necessarily have to, based on warning systems, check your blind spot. But as someone who grew up driving and still does drive uh, vehicles that don't have those systems necessarily, so older vehicles, uh-huh. uh, checking your blind spot, for example, so quickly looking back, would this be the way you see it? That would be a, a fall under that quick glance category. And so therefore wouldn't trigger some sort of response. Correct. I, I, I think the DMS systems um, are going to have to become more sophisticated. So, for example, glances away from the road scene ahead, some of them should be permitted, like, you know, operating some of the high frequency of use controls like we've talked about, but also checking your rear view mirror, checking your side mirrors. You know, that's a perfectly safe thing to be done and should be encouraged. So you shouldn't be penalizing systems for or drivers rather for, for looking away completely. Um, there are certain eye and head positions that will be allowed. Um, but if I'm looking down at my mobile phone for two, three, four seconds, that certainly should not be uh, allowed. It should be detected and the driver should be alerted. Okay, I have a quick business question for you. And then I'll let Alex or I jump in. You've mentioned a couple of times uh, you've used a phrase in the lab. Yeah. So when I hear that, I don't necessarily think of on the road, but maybe your lab is literally on a test track or something. So are you doing any proof of concept stuff on the road? And are you working with any automakers as you work on that proof of concept? Okay, so all of the work that we've done to date has been in the lab. It's a laboratory. Um, we are at the moment working towards putting this technology, having proven the performance in the lab. The very next stage now is what we're actually um, deep in the throes of, which is actually transferring this technology into a vehicle. Um, and once it's in the vehicle, that's when we will do our next phase of user experiments. So to date, you're right, it's all laboratory-based, um, but going forward, it, it will certainly be on, on the road. There are um, obviously some serious limitations that we will have. Um, in the lab, um, we can uh, bring users in, we can give them a very specific amount of alcohol, and we can do some tests in the driving simulator. Um, doing that out in the real world presents um, some problems um, and some difficulties. So um, there, there are a number of issues that um, 
we will have to work our way through carefully as as we go forward. There are some elements like fatigue that will be easier to test um, on the road, and and that's where we'll be starting with our on-road testing. Have you ever thought about using this system or talking with um, like um, freight or trucking companies because fatigue is a real issue? And so, yeah. getting to Alex's earlier point, where forget about the uh, levels of automation here for a minute and just focus on um, maybe the drivers or the companies that employ the drivers that are under potentially the most fatigue and are doing the most driving, which would be truck drivers. I think you've been looking at our business plan. Um, <laughs> the fleet, the fleet market is actually the um, one of the first markets that we um, will be targeting for the reasons you've just outlined. This is a perfect technology um, for the fleet market. And just to go back to your other question, which I forgot to answer, yes, we are engaging with a number of OEMs, um, but the fleet aftermarket um, is is definitely something. Um, that is in our target to start with. Um, it's an easier market to uh, penetrate. Um, it's less uh, stringent. The OEM market uh, tends to have a much longer gestation period. So, yes, we, we are working with both and we will start with the fleet. So I, I, I've got a question. What is the hardware necessary to deploy the, the, the technology in a car? So there's three elements to the hardware. There's the driver-facing camera, which will exist. So anybody, any OEM that is introducing uh, DMS, we will utilize the same driver-facing camera. There's the ECU, the electronic control unit. Um, and again, our plan is to use that existing hardware. So all the ECUs will have a CPU, they'll have memory, um, and provided that's sufficient to host our software, we will use um, we will use their ECU. And then finally, um, we need to introduce the stimulus, which I've, I've mentioned is a, a visual stimulus. So they're the three pieces of hardware that are required, all very easy to integrate into a, a vehicle. And with a DMS, the vast majority of it will already be there. So does it require, I mean, can it work standalone without connectivity? Yes, it can. Um, but for, as Kirsten's just mentioned, um, if you are the fleet manager and you've got several thousand truck drivers out there, um, it would be very useful <laughs> to know what the cognitive state um, of each of your drivers are. And it would also be useful to know what are the hazards that they're missing so that information, if you as a fleet manager, would be very useful. So connectivity in that case would be useful. But yes, it can work completely standalone. And um, I just have a question about sort of the consumer or the potential consumer market for this. Um, you know, uh, our friend Alex Roy uh, likes to say that nobody cares about safety. Um, and, uh, you know, we had an interview, uh, a conversation a while ago with um, – Ken Tindell, who's, de who's developing a security product. And, and one of the, the things that he pointed out is, you know, people don't like to pay for security, you know, cybersecurity things until something bad happens. Yeah. Um, and, and with safety, I think there's maybe potentially a little bit of a, of a similar problem in that, you know, I think one of the reasons people love Tesla Autopilot is because it isn't safe. It does, it allows <laughs> them to use it anywhere and anytime. It makes it feel more autonomous than it is, which again, is, is core to the danger. Um, but, but, 
you know, it, it resonates with the marketplace. Uh, is, is this something you're concerned about at all? Or um, is this a fundamental problem? Or, or is this something that your system addresses? Um, I'm just curious what your thoughts on this general issue is. I, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, concerned too much. I, I think your point is valid that if, it, particularly if we look at the passenger car aftermarket, it's not something that um, is prevalent. However, um, uh, it's something I'm quite relaxed about because I do believe um, there is a strong market, and and the market is if if any parent um, has concerns about, for example, their children uh, driving, um, which I am. I've got two boys, both twenty. I would love to know if my kids are driving when they're cognitively impaired, either through alcohol or sleep deprivation or substance abuse, and I will pay money for that. Um, and I don't think I'm alone. Um, so, so that, that would be my, um, my take on that. Yeah. No. And I think that as, as sort of regulators as well, get a more sophisticated sense of, of sort of what the safety issues really are with, uh, particularly like level two automation systems. Um, mm -hmm. we're already seeing this in Europe with the, with the Euro NCAP rules, you know, requiring systems like this, um, that that's also going to help develop a market because it's going to help people understand like that, that just having a level two system doesn't necessarily fundamentally make you safer. Um, that sort of the, the safety advantage of that depends on right, like how how well it's designed um, in a way to to prevent sort of increased distraction, um, like we've seen in some of those systems. Absolutely. So, so Carl, the uh, I know you may not want to answer this because, <laughs> for obvious reasons, the Tesla Model Three has a cabin facing camera that's located above the rearview mirror. Um, this camera is not present in the Model S or the X. Uh, Elon Musk has said that this camera is going to um, observe the occupants of the vehicle for some future, you know, Tesla network shared robo taxi fleet, which I find absurd. Yeah. But um, some have some have uh, you know speculated, myself optimistically, that that camera, which is centrally mounted might be capable of doing uh, performing a, a DMS camera task. It's also been suggested that the camera's low light capabilities are are, are, are suboptimal and insufficient and that it's uh, that because it's placed off axis and, and very much off axis for the driver face that it would not really be suitable for as a DMS camera. Do mm -hmm. you have an opinion or anything you can share with us today? Um I do have an opinion. I think it's an encouraging step by Tesla to introduce it. Um, and I think it could be used as a uh, DMS. I think for the basic features that we talked about before in terms of looking at head and eye uh, tracking, uh, looking at hands-on wheel detection and looking at postural sensing. Um, and I suspect um, that Tesla are, are very um, well aware that um, when we talk about disengagements, most of the conversation tends to focus on, you know, the driver taking back control. What we haven't talked about is, uh, you know, immediate and sudden system failures where the driver needs to take control um, pretty quick or the vehicle needs to execute minimum risk maneuver. And I do think going forward, there's going to be all sorts of complexities in terms of liability where we have vehicle systems handing over to drivers, drivers saying that they weren't ready. And I think any OEM who hasn't taken 
um, appropriate steps to introduce some form of DMS may, may have some difficult answers, uh, sorry, difficult questions to, to answer. Um, so I, I think the introduction of DMS is inevitable. I really do, um, particularly as we see increasing levels of automation. So the, does any organization today do a DMS comparison in terms of quality or accuracy of driver state? There is nobody that is doing um, true driver state. Uh, There are some um, aftermarket alcohol breath testers that would um, inhibit ignition start. Um, But in terms of cognitive state for things like substance abuse, um, you know, the onset before we see um, what we call per close, i.e. closures per minute, um, be, before we see that onset, again, there is nothing on the market to detect uh, sleep deprivation. Um, and in in vehicle um, alcohol uh, consumption detection. Um, so all these things, as I say, are, are in the cognition layer and the cognitive state. The DMS today look at the physical parameters. Um, the cognition layer will sit on top. And there's no question that the industry will definitely move in that direction as as we move forward. I know we're running out of time here, but I'm curious the cam. So the cameras that we the camera based DMSs yeah. like in a in a Super Cruise it has an infrared lamp yeah. built into the steering wheel. You can see its elements yeah. uh, at at eleven o'clock and a one o'clock. Yeah, is it possible for a camera that is just a camera that lacks an infrared illumination? Um, you know, elements to monitor a driver in all lighting conditions? Without the IR illuminators. Correct. Without IR illuminators, it will be very difficult to um, detect um, certainly eye gaze during nighttime driving. Okay. So so the Tesla 3 camera would not be sufficient for 24-hour monitoring, um, even if it could, if it had appropriate, you know, off-axis performance for observation. Unless they've got a a specific new camera that I'm not aware of, Um, I've not personally uh, seen or done any testing on that camera, Um, but I would be surprised if if it doesn't have IR illuminators, whether it can perform um, certainly as well uh, during nighttime driving. So if if such a system in a Tesla or any other vehicle with a camera would perform the observation component of what Adam does, yeah. then what is the secondary hardware that performs the, uh, I guess, the um, subliminal or, uh, you know, su- prescriptive, suggestive element, you know, for the eyes and the, and the uh, decision-making? So IR illuminators are simply just an array of infrared LEDs. Um, what we what we use for the stimulus is basically non-infrared, so they're in the visi- visible spectrum, um, and it's just the addition of two LEDs that could be embedded within any IR illuminator array. Ah, oh, I see. Okay, interesting. So I, I have a quick question, Carl. I know you're uh, based in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering wh- where is uh, the majority of Adam Cocktex work being done right now is it here in portland or is it elsewhere uh 
So the majority um, is done in Israel, just outside uh, Tel Aviv. That's where we have um, the R&D team uh, and the lab. Great. And where can we learn more about Adam Cogtech if someone would like to poke around what you're doing? So any, anybody who is an interest in Adam, they can go to our website, www.adam-cogtech.com, or they can reach out to me personally, Carl at adam-cogtech.com. Um, and I'd be more than happy uh, to engage with any of your listeners that have an interest in this area. Great. Well, thanks so much. Uh, Kirsten, what are you working on these days? Uh, that we- <clears throat> Nothing I can talk about. <laughs> no, actually, actually, no, no, no. Actually, I do have something fun. So I'm test driving the Kia Nero EV right now. Oh, God. <laughs> what? <laughs> are you about to say, well, it's not a Tesla, no, so therefore it's good. not great? I hear you, but let me guess. Charging infrastructure. <laughs> so I'm going to drive it from Tucson to L.A., and I'm looking at the map, and I definitely have some choices to make. Mm. And let's just say that if the one Electrify America fast charger is either occupied or doesn't work, then I'm going to be stuck. And then you also have a, a, your conference coming up, right? I do. Which we've, we've run a few spots for, right? Yeah, yeah. So July 10th is uh, TechCrunch's mobility conference one day session it's got a pretty great agenda and ed and alex will also be there so uh-huh. <laughs> that's the the real it's part of the, the requirement is that they have to go yeah. uh so if you have any alex if you have any um I, I actually just so you know i i felt a little bit ignored i texted you this weekend with that news about driving long distance in the EV and I received zero advice. So I went ahead and just figured it out myself. <laughs> but if you have any, you know, knowledge to impart along the way, tactics to increase my range. So I'm not stuck. That'd be great. Well, I was very busy commuting from Pittsburgh back to New York in my brand new Tesla model three, which doesn't really suffer from these problems. Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> the infrastructure is supercharger network. Yeah. However, I have discovered, that um, if you commute in the same uh, corridor frequently, you often only have one or two locations. And boy, if once you get sick and tired of the food options there, you are screwed. You know, the charger at Carlisle, Pennsylvania is next to a sheets station. The food there sucks. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is really suboptimal. You're going to get some hate mail for that. There's some, some big sheets fans. You should probably just pack a lunch. Yeah. Have a little picnic. So I went I so I decided to, you know, tease the range of the vehicle to go to just east of Harrisburg. There's another charger, which is, you know, behind this building. And I arrive and all the good restaurants have closed at nine. So I went to Chipotle, which is very nice. <laughs> but really, um where who is gonna launch a franchise of, of good food that's tailored towards a Tesla owning demographic? Uh, well, I believe Elon, Elon Musk, Musk talk. I believe Elon Musk promised some sort of convenience store type of thing a while ago. Oh, he was going to do a rockabilly like diner or something, wasn't yeah. he? In LA, so it's been promised. I'm sure it'll happen any day now. Yeah, uh, three months, maybe six months, definitely. Uh, Edward, um, we're, we're almost in an hour. But what are you yeah, working on? Speaking of Tesla, oh God, I just, uh, I just uh, uh, published um, two stories at the Drive um, about. Tesla's paint shop, 
which if you follow my uh, work and, and their air quality compliance. Um, this, is some, this is something I've been following since 2016. I put a lot of time and effort into this story. I also actually, to be honest, like it's such a complicated and difficult topic. I kind of gave up on it for quite a while and, um, and discovered in my absence that there've been some major developments. Um, and really Tesla has been treating air quality rules at their factory as optional. Um, they really just uh, install equipment and start operating it without uh, waiting for any kind of permitting, which is uh, very much a no-no. Um, and then there's also sort of a, a bigger issue here uh, where there's sort of been these ongoing problems with their paint shop, um, particularly with this thing called the e-scrub system. Um, so I have another story. I have one story that's sort of just the news about about this uh, these violations of like 18 notices of violation and like 21 uh, uh, permit deviations, quote unquote. Um, and then also um, I sort of dig into specifically in the paint shop, um, sort of how uh, they've had problems with the system that has kind of caused this cascading situation where the, there were these fires. And so they had to turn off this, this abatement equipment, which caused problems with other abatement equipment. And, and it, it just kind of shows how complicated and challenging uh, paint shops and, and particularly making them environmentally compliant are. Um, and also it really shows a pattern on Tesla's part that, that, for me anyway, and I'm sure other people will see this differently, but it really uh, stands in, in pretty sharp contrast to uh, uh, sort of how they present themselves as an environmental champion. Um, you would think a company like that would would comply with laws. Do I even need to read the article? Yes, you, you really you should. And, and in fact, I recommend that everyone not just read the article, but, but click through um, to the documents that I cite in the article. Um, because then you don't have to take my word for any of this. And me being a Tesla hater is totally irrelevant because it's not me saying this stuff. This is um, the quality regulator that, that Tesla has to deal with. Um, yeah. So I expect uh, there, there probably will be fines forthcoming for this. Um, we're just a little ahead of the curve because it takes the BAA QMD about two years usually um, from notice of violation to, to actually levying fines. So uh, if you read the drive, you just stay a little bit ahead of the curve on this stuff. Well, I'd love to tell you about my Tesla ownership, but we've gone almost over an hour. So it'll have to be another episode where I talk about my brand new Tesla lease that I absolutely love <laughs> so much. I think I might lease another one and put it on Turo in the West Coast. Oh, my All God. Right, um, nice. There you uh, go. Everybody, have a wonderful week and um, see you soon. And thanks, Carl, for coming on yeah, our show, so. right, Alex? You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Yeah, Carl. In fact, I hope you raise lots of money and you and you make me a phenomenal offer so I can quit the Atonicast because these people are – I mean, <laughs> Edward is making me crazy. You'll be the first call I make, Alex. Thank you. Well done. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thank you.